welcome to our first community of practice for coronavirus care. Uh, it's July uh, 2nd, and for those that are logging on live, uh, we'll be going through uh, uh, a number of videos, and those that are watching on demand, it'll be one continuous video. I'm Charles Denham. I'm chairman of TMIT Global and a co-founder of the MedTAC Bystander Rescue Care uh, Program. Uh, first off, I'd just like to make sure everyone has their WebEx volume to the max, your computer volume to the max, and the external speaker volume to the max. If you are dialing in only by phone, you will not be able to see the videos. However, if you go to www.medtechglobal.org, uh, you'll be able to log in uh, to the videos uh, when you do so. If anyone has difficulty with their audio, uh, if you uh, click on the participants section on the WebEx page uh, and request a phone, you'll be able to listen to what I'm saying. However, we'll be showing a number of videos today uh, and you'll have to go to the website. So the f first off, our purpose statement uh, of our organization, TMIT Global, is that we will measure our success by how we protect and enrich the lives of families, patients, and caregivers. Our mission is to accelerate performance solutions that save lives, save money, and create value in the communities we serve and ventures we undertake. And we have a number of initiatives that you'll hear about today if you're a first-timer. This is our very first program for a combined public and com combined medical uh, uh, nursing uh, and uh, healthcare uh, professional program. So we've combined audiences focused on families. Whenever we do so, we always have a disclosure statement, and that's on slide six, and none of our participants have financial relationships with any organization that will be discussed, and none will be discussed today, uh, and no funding has been received from the pharmaceutical or device industry and healthcare. It's been funded by, uh, uh, by family philanthropy. It's really a, a great pleasure for me to have such a wonderful group of reactors today, Dr. Gregory Boats from MD Anderson, who's joint faculty at Stanford Medical Center, Dr. Casey Clements. Uh, emergency medicine uh, doctor, and I'll be reading each one of their bios for you so you know who they are, but Dr. Casey Clemens from the Mayo Clinic, uh, Dr. Uh, Christopher Peabody from the uh, University of California, San Francisco, Heather Foster, a nurse, uh, uh, ICU nurse and medical uh, infection preventionist, uh, Mr. David Beshka, uh, uh, a great educator from Southern California and one of our master instructors with the uh, MedTech Bystander Care Program and Jennifer Dingman, a longtime champion of patient safety representing the, um, uh, the voice of the patient, and we're just delighted to have this fantastic group, uh, as is our normal approach with our medical programs. We're, almost, we're in our second decade of delivering 90-minute webinars to doctors, nurses, and healthcare administrators and board members, uh, over 140 webinars now. And we've started everyone and ended everyone with the voice of the patient and the voice of the family. It's a, it's a real pleasure to have Jennifer Dingman be our voice of the patient today, longstanding patient safety champion, co-author of a number of patient safety uh, uh, articles. Uh, she has been uh, the She's the founder of Pulse, the Persons United in Limiting Substandard and Errors in Healthcare, and it's been a, a joy to work with uh, Jennifer. She's one of a number of folks from the public who have had medical errors in their families who meet with uh, me every other Saturday morning, and she's had a terrific impact on healthcare working with a number of the government agencies as well as uh, a number of initiatives. Heather, would you, or, uh, Jennifer, would you please uh, uh, just get us focused on the right thing today? 
Thank you, Dr. Denon, for having me here today. I am very excited about this webinar. So much great information about the COVID-19 virus will be given to the, to the people listening here today, and I'm anxious to hear everything that our great doctors and our nurse are going to say about it. Again, thank you so much for being here, and I remind everyone that this, uh, this webinar will be recorded. Please share the recording, and please keep us in mind for future webinars. Um, again, thank you so much, and I'll hand it back to you, Dr. Denham. Great, Jennifer. Thank you. Uh, so uh, this is really exciting for us. We'll explain a little bit of how this evolved. A community of practice is a group of individuals, leaders, and organizations who work together, become a learning community, and contribute to uh, each other's knowledge and know-how. When we've built them, and we've been building them for 35 years, we have world-class faculty members that provide and inform us, and then we all collaborate together. So this is the first of... Uh, a monthly webinar series that will be the first Thursday of every month until the crisis is over, and we'll be generating a number of what we call survive and thrive guides uh, uh, through a series. You'll note that there's a trademark there, but there's no commercial uh, interest. We found out that there's a lot of misinformation out there, and we really need to protect the integrity of all the academic documents that we generate. Uh, however, the survive and thrive guides will be a series. We'll be addressing back to school, health security plans for families, going to the emergency department. So uh, this is Dr. Denham. I'm back again. I had a, a telephone failure here with a telephone line. I'm waiting to be able to see the slides on the screen. And so I will cover some of the topics that, uh, that we will today. It's a, it's a real thrill to have this group uh, on. And what I'll do is uh, cover the bios of each of the individuals that are on today while I'm waiting to be able to see the slides myself. I'll be showing a video of Dr. Greg Boats. Dr. Boats uh, is an ICU on call today, and Dr. Boats is the co-founder uh, co of the MedTAC Bystander Rescue Care Program. Mr. B uh, Dr. Boats is, uh, has been working with us on this program for five years. He has dual appointments as a professor of, of critical care and anesthesia at the University of Texas at Texas Medical Center at MD Anderson, as well as an adjunct associate professorship at Stanford Medical School. Uh, Dr. Boats uh, has been working with us in the, with our MedTAC uh, program and is the clinical director uh, of the content that we develop for our bystander rescue care program. We also have uh, Heather Foster. Heather Foster is an ICU nurse from Colorado, uh, who is uh, also a nurse preventionist uh, and has been a real champion for the proper care uh, of our, our caregivers uh, as well as our patients in patient safety and quality. She said 2018 winner of the Pete Conrad Patient Safety Award uh, and has done a terrific job there. Uh, Dr. Casey Clements is the med medical director uh, for uh, the emergency medicine uh, uh, area. And now I see I have my slides back, so uh, uh, I'll uh, go ahead and uh, I'll go ahead and uh, just finish up these introductions, quick introductions. But Dr. Casey uh, Clements is the is uh, the medical director of the Emergency Behavioral Health Practice, uh, practice chair of the P Department of Emergency Medicine, and an assistant professor of emergency medicine at the Mayo Clinic. And we have Dr. Christopher Peabody, uh, who is uh, the director of the University of California, San Francisco Acute Care Innovation Center at UCSF in San Francisco. 
Mr. David Besch is an award-winning educator uh, who will be uh, speaking with us on behalf of the, of the families of the, so many of the kids and young people that we are training at Eagle Scout, who's been a terrific trainer, and you've heard from uh, uh, Jennifer Dingman. So uh, I'm going to be advancing the slides, and we'll be showing videos today. I'm so sorry about the technical difficulty, but we'll keep going. Uh, we, we try to practice the four P's, prevention, preparedness, protection, and performance improvement. These are methods and systems engineering that allow us to really tackle new risks and threats. The MedTAC program that I alluded to expanded to cover infections and the COVID-19 issue. We started it about five years ago, and there are a number of articles in the literature, uh, in the safety and security literature that we've written addressing this program. Uh, it's founded in 2015. We have early pilots in five states, including Hawaii, California, Texas, uh, Minnesota, Florida, and soon to be Massachusetts and possibly Montana and some of the mountain states. And so if you go to medtechglobal.org, you'll land on a landing page that then will take you through the coronavirus uh, crisis linkage or the coronavirus resources to the page that you see here. What we're going to do today is show a number of videotapes that you can come back and watch. You can watch them two different ways. You can watch this program again, or you can watch the individual videotapes in the viewer that you see on the left side of the slide here today. Uh, these webinars we've started and will continue through the whole coronavirus crisis period uh, entirely free. There'll be free video, free resources posted, uh, and you'll be able to, at the bottom of the page, we've posted a way for you to download download really important articles and get to links of documentaries and a number of issues that can help us really sort out a lot of the information uh, that's out there. It's very confusing. The science is changing so dramatically and rapidly. Um, so the Campus Safety Magazine is one of, the, one of the articles that describes the MedTAC program. If you wanted to learn more and be prior to, uh, prior to our work here, uh, we were working on the eight leading causes of death. So when the coronavirus crisis hit, we got together with Dr. Boats, Chief Bill Adcox, who's the Chief of Police and the Chief Security Officer at MD Anderson Cancer Center, and now more than 40 experts, including uh, Heather Foster, who's the nurse preventionist I alluded to earlier. And Heather was a terrific contributor to uh, the program that we started uh, when the crisis hit on preparing to care for folks at home. And then as we went through the lockdown and a number of our communities were stricken by uh, the, uh, a number of uh, the challenges of the coronavirus, this expanded to be now be a two-and-a-half-hour course that covers a number of topics that were covered today. Um, and the reason that we started at, on slide 16 is because a, an enormous amount, a, a number of people at work today are keeping the lights on, keeping the water flowing, keeping the internet operating, keeping us defended. Uh, they're their doctors, our nurses, our pharmacists, and what we, what the CDC and the government describes as essential critical infrastructure workers. And as as I talk to more and more people in schools of public health and people in the community at the beginning of the crisis, there was absolutely nothing out there to train and take care of their families. 
families. And so although these people are putting it on the line every single day, they're coming home worried about bringing the virus home. They don't know what to do if someone in their family gets sick. If they get sick, there's no way for them to teach their family how to take care of them. And this is how this whole program evolved. Uh, and so it grew from a handful now to over 40 experts. And so I'm really speaking today uh, more as a spokesperson for more than 40 experts coming from medicine, nursing, pharmacy, engineering, uh, our medical schools, our nursing schools, and a number of contributors from business and a number of, uh, uh, of uh, folks from our faith-based community that have been terrific champions. The academic centers are Harvard, uh, Harvard Medical School, as I mentioned earlier, Mayo Clinic, UCSF, University of Texas, University of California, Irvine, a whole host of experts, including, including Dennis Quaid that has joined, who has joined us to help champion the cause and was involved in our initial patient safety uh, documentaries that you see on the bottom of the page uh, 18, and a number of experts, uh, my, my recently, uh, uh, my wonderful partner at Harvard, at Harvard Business School, Professor Christensen, who we lost this year, uh, battling many, many illnesses at one time and always helping others, Jim Collins, uh, Sully Sullenberger, and a number of contributors that are in our, uh, our documentaries. They weren't active contributors to this particular program, but their great work uh, was, uh, was really inspiring, and it, we were able to incorporate it into this training program. So today we're going to cover the four pillars of public health that are critical with this virus. However, uh, this training program, we would look forward to having you join us to take our certification courses that will address the basics, practices, leadership and technologies and what we'll be talking today about today briefly to give you a framework but then dive right into some of the really really important pillars of public health are the critical importance to put a put together a family health safety plan or a health security plan and really there there are, there are five elements to it being ready ready for the next wave ready for the surges being able to respond if someone gets sick in your family being able to rescue them even if you're not a medical person or a, uh, or in any field of science but knowing how to go to see our great doctors like Dr. Clements and Dr. Peabody recovery how do we get back to the new normal and then resilience how do we create an environment so our family uh, is more protected and more ready for these, whether it's a hurricane or whether it's anything else. These are the four pillars that we're working on today that we're going to brief you on, kind of the latest information on social distancing, hand washing, disinfecting surfaces, the critical issue about use of masks, and you have wonderful clinical leaders today to answer questions at the end of the webinar, but also comment as we, as we go through them. So uh, first off, I'm going to play uh, a uh, a videotape of Dr. Boats, who's on call today in ICU. I filmed him last night uh, and, uh, uh, because he wanted to contribute to the program, and he's taking care of patients today with the surge that they're experiencing in Houston. So I'll ask Kyle Kemp, our chief of staff, now to roll the, the videotape. Dr. Boats, thank you so much for joining us from your on-call room there in Houston. You are experiencing a surge, and it's so generous of you to take your time uh, to, to share it with us in our during our first coronavirus community of practice session. Uh, what advice do you have to our teams and families and those that are attending about these major pillars of public health? Maybe start off with social distance. Well, it's certainly a pleasure to be with you for this very important webinar. Uh, as you know, the public health measures are incredibly important. 
social distancing is a known uh, intervention that helps to prevent spread of viral illnesses, especially respiratory illnesses. Um, it's meant to protect you, uh, your family, and everyone else around you. And then when we talk about hand hygiene and couple that up with face touching and that kind of thing, how absolutely critical it is and, uh, and just encouraging some of these basics. We'll be going through the science behind them and the history, but your advice there. Well, even if we weren't in a pandemic, hand washing is critically important in healthcare and in care of uh, people who are sick in the community. Uh, if you're taking care of someone at home who has a viral illness, whether it's the seasonal flu or otherwise, um, hand hygiene, hand washing is critically important to prevent spread. So the high contact surfaces have always been an important area, and we know there's been a little bit of confusion regarding the fundamentals there. We know the fundamentals really matter and are important. Would you share your thoughts there? Well, no matter what the cause of infection, whether it's respiratory or bloodborne or otherwise, uh, contact surfaces are important to control because these viruses or infecting organisms can survive for some time on these high contact surfaces. So having good attention to disinfection and realizing that touching things and then touching your face is a, a real way of uh, transmitting these organisms that cause infection is important. And finally, masks, the use of masks. And again, we've been challenged as a country in not having enough masks for our healthcare workers. And I think it's, we're really starting to get clarity about the value of the mask, both to the wearer, as well as uh, an individual that might be infected or asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. Uh, your advice there? Well, I think this is one of the most difficult aspects of the public health measures because people aren't used to wearing masks in public. Those of us in healthcare wear them in uh, circumstances where there is a high chance of spread or where we're trying to reduce uh, uh, infection, like in the operating room or in the ICU. Uh, but they are critically important to the reduction in spread of respiratory um, infections, like we see with the coronavirus. If we can reduce the amount of droplets in the environment that can either be spread directly to someone or onto a contact surface, uh, the less likely we'll have uh, cross-contamination of other people. You know, you're so generous to, to share your time with us now, uh, being there on call, and I just want to acknowledge you for the wonderful contribution that you made to our much longer courses that we're offering for certification uh, in terms of preparing a family for taking care of a loved one at home and the transition to the hospital, et cetera. As a, as a critical care doctor and with multiple faculty appointments, uh, uh, you've really helped us understand a little bit more about dealing with some of the fear of this, this whole uh, set of experiences that coronavirus has brought us and the COVID-19 illness. Uh, what advice do you have uh, for us regarding, uh, as we move forward, uh, managing that worry, those worries and concerns and that we've really uh, been developing, I think, as you've shared with us, uh, a number of new methods to take care of patients if they do go to the hospital? Well, as you know, it's critically important in our healthcare system to not only care for our caregivers, but to care for their families and the communities they live in. And so it's really important to continue to speak about the public health measures that we can do that are known to help prevent transmission of these very infectious organisms. 
And so it's really a key element that we inform, educate, and train uh, those in our community uh, about these practices so that we can reduce the likelihood that it will spread. And more importantly, that it will spread to the point where it will overwhelm our healthcare system. That's the big fear that I have. Um, this is a virus uh, that is new to our population. It's something we've never seen before. We don't have immunity. And so the susceptibility of our population to the people around us is very high. But it's a virus. It's a respiratory virus. We know about them. If we do these measures, we're going to contain it. We can't stop it, but we can certainly do measures that will help it from spreading rapidly and uh, overwhelming our healthcare system. Um, all we can do is, uh, is do our best with these four major milestones of public health to try to keep our people safe. Well, finally, Greg, I, I just want to thank you and acknowledge you, acknowledge you as I read through my journal, my prayer journal with my son. It was five years ago that we had a telephone call and I was working on a major project there at Texas Medical Center. And you said, you just have 15 minutes on a passion area. And uh, it was your inspiration that led to the development of the MedTAC program. So we wouldn't all be on today if it hadn't been for the extra 15 minute phone call. And uh, will it be eternally grateful to you for inspiring us and leading us and mentoring us along the way? Well, thank you for those kind words. I know the work that we're doing with MedTech is so important to the health and safety of our communities. So thank you uh, for watching the videotape. Those of you that were on the phone uh, may not have heard Dr. Boats. Uh, you will be able to, the video will be posted uh, of this entire program. Now what we'll, we'll do is we're going to uh, share, share a short video regarding our community of practice, this practice that you're participating in today, some of the history and what's going on uh, regarding the topics that we're tackling. And we'll go right next uh, into a video regarding why social distancing and how social distancing works and then we'll have our panelists all make a comment regarding social distancing uh, uh, because we'll have a good body of information there that we can react to and then we'll show two more videotapes one on disinfectants hand washing and then also critical contact surfaces have our reactors react to that and then we'll uh, address the emergency medicine issue because we've got such great uh, emergency medicine doctors on the call today the coronavirus crisis has and will continue to have enormous impact on families around the world. All families need continuously updated information about how to keep their loved ones safe. Join us and we'll do our best to give you what you need. Keep up on the evolving science of the virus, the reasons for social distance, hand hygiene, the risk of high contact surfaces, use of masks, and testing for isolation and quarantine purposes. Most importantly, how to prepare to care for someone at your home. Learn with us through the power of stories, stories of real life and action heroes captured in major motion pictures that help us remember the vital life-saving skills that can mean the difference between life and death for your family. I am Charles Denham, Chairman of TMIT Global and the MedTAC Bystander Rescue Care Program. It's my honor to speak for our rapid response team that was originally assembled to meet a critical unmet need of essential workforce families. On behalf of this team, I invite you to join our community of practice. It has been specifically developed for families of the general public and families of critical essential workers. We invite you to attend our free monthly webinars, online demand training, and take our training certificate courses for professionals and families.
We have programs for all faiths, medical and security volunteers, and we're developing survive and thrive guides to help educators and schools as they seek to overcome social distance challenges to keep their students safe. Learn about service opportunities for scouts, teams, and local membership organizations. The critical and original unmet need that was driving us was to help families of the 16 industry sectors who were keeping our country going, saving our lives, keeping the lights and water on, keeping food in our stores, keeping our houses of worship safe, and serving our communities in so many ways. While our country was dealing with the surprise attack of the virus, families of these workers were dealing with the much greater risk of getting infected than the rest of us and there were no resources for them. So to meet that need, we activated our MedTech Bystander Care Team, multi-generational members, and experts across the country. Many contributed from very dangerous healthcare sites and others from lockdown in their homes. They helped produce what our essential workforce families needed to care for and protect their loved ones. We undertook an experiment to answer two questions. First, could we combine our audience of professional caregivers from 3,100 hospitals who we've been serving through monthly webinars over 10 years with a non-medical audience of the general public? Could they and would they like to learn together? The second question was, would the two audiences see value in making the training family-centered using the language of families? The data regarding the spread of the virus through families is very clear. We know we have to equip whole families and not just individuals to beat this pandemic. However, would both our audiences see it this way? Led by expert physicians, security and law enforcement leaders, and nurse infection preventionists, we produced two national webinars for the combined audiences of professional caregivers, critical essential worker families, scout groups, faith-based organizations and their members, and the general public. The surveys of these two audiences confirmed the same belief we used to produce two global broadcast Discovery Channel documentaries in patient safety. The belief was that we could produce programs with enough medical information to satisfy professional caregivers, while at the same time meet the needs of the general public. The answer to the second question, whether the family-centric approach was of value to both our audiences was a full-throated yes. So we expanded the training from just the webinars to create a full multimedia certification course. We apply the great lessons we've learned in patient safety and communicated through our films with Dennis Quaid, who has championed the cause. And the good news is that the real sweet spot or safety envelope for high-performance care is the intersection of three systems, leadership, safe practices, and technology. When these support systems are functioning within the right organizational culture, we get great care and we get safe care. We cover the basics of the latest science of the virus, social distancing, hand hygiene, the evidence for the risks of high contact surfaces where the virus can remain for some time that should be disinfected, and the evolving evidence behind the practical use of masks, which are found to be increasingly important to prevent transmission. We cover leadership using the amazing story of the miracle on the Hudson by hero Sully Sullenberger. We address the importance of a family health security or safety plan for readiness, response, rescue, recovery, and resilience. 
We cover best practices using the movie The Martian to establish how and why checklists are so important and how they can be used to develop a care room at home in case someone in the family gets infected. Finally, we use the story and motion picture of Apollo 13. We address how low-tech and high-tech innovations can be used to help families care for someone at home. And if the need arises, what to expect if your loved one has to go to the emergency department. We incorporate clips from great documentaries and news programs such as the Understanding Coronavirus from Netflix documentary, broadcast town halls, and highlights for children and youth, as well as important articles in the press and the literature. Our surveys of the public who were introduced to the courses revealed great interest in us hosting more live 90-minute webinars specifically addressing the coronavirus crisis. So we decided to launch a community of practice specifically for this crisis that we will run until there's no further need. Members of the community of practice have lots of options. They can merely attend the monthly live or online recorded webinars delivering a light version of our certification programs or they may decide to take the deeper dive online certification programs that have quizzes and tests to earn certificates of completion. They will be delivered through our learning management system called Care University, which has served our patient safety community for years. Since safe care and great care occurs when the whole family is involved, the messages will be family-centric while presenting the latest science. Professional caregivers will earn continuing education credits and documentation for licensure. Professional first responders will earn certificates of completion. Faith-based and medical security volunteers and staff will earn certificates of completion for work on specific worship center issues. Educators and schools may earn certificates of completion for a train-the-trainer program. Scout groups will earn acknowledgement for their participation and service. And the general public will get credit that may help them with insurance discounts. We will use the same monthly format of live experts, reactor panels, and Q&A sessions that we have for the last 10 years and more than 140 sequential monthly webinars for our patient safety community of practice of professional caregivers. Every first Thursday of the month, our coronavirus webinars will commence at noon central time and run for 90 minutes. The live broadcast will then be recorded and posted as on-demand learning programs so anyone can view them from anywhere and at any time in the future. Please register with us and join the community of practice. The program is entirely free. You'll only receive invitations. No personal contact information will be shared or sold. And no funding of the program comes from the healthcare pharmaceutical or device industries. Share the link to our monthly webinars with anyone you wish. We foster an all-teach-all-learn culture and we'll have generous Q&A sessions at the end of each webinar. We developed our MedTAC Bystander Rescue Care program five years ago to teach the public how to save lives in those 10 minutes before professional first responders arrive. Now being piloted in five states, we tackled the leading causes of preventable death and teach what anyone in the public can do to save lives in those first precious minutes when so many lives can be saved. CPR and use of automated external defibrillators for sudden cardiac arrest the Heimlich Maneuver for choking and water rescue for drowning, care of opioid overdose with the use of reversal agents like Narcan, EpiPen use for life-threatening allergic reactions to food, medicines, and insect bites, bleeding control for active shooter events and major trauma, infection prevention and care, non-traffic-related run-over transportation accidents, and bullying which can lead to harm and even death. 
Failure to rescue has been our fight. Now, harm from the coronavirus crisis has jumped to the top of the list and has impacted the care for all of these emergency conditions. Share the link to our monthly webinars with anyone you wish. We foster an all-teach-all-learn culture and we'll have generous Q&A sessions at the end of each webinar. The care of our communities is absolutely critical. Thank you for all you're doing to protect those at risk and those who are most vulnerable. As we say to all of our MedTAC rescue teams, we have to fight the good fight, finish the race, and keep the faith. Everyone is a patient, and everyone can be a caregiver. So thank you uh, so much for uh, indulging us to uh, be able to show the same ending to each video. Now you can see that these are all standalone videos, uh, and we're showing them in sequence so that you can share them with your families, and especially for our scouts who will uh, be training their families and get service hour credits. What I'm going to do right now is, rather than show the video, because we had this interruption of the telephone line earlier, uh, I'm going to skip over contact surfaces, because a lot of what we covered in disinfectants is there, and they have such great reactors. I want to give them a chance to speak right now, and then I'm going to roll right into masks, and we'll then talk about the emergency department so that Dr. Clements and Dr. Peabody uh, can, uh, can address uh, uh, this critical issue of getting folks into the emergency department. So uh, let, me, uh, let me just stop right here and ask Dr. Clements just to react to what you've heard. Anything you want to reinforce, we'll keep them short. Well, then we'll go right into... Uh, 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 masks and emergency departments, and we'll go with Dr. Clements first, and then Dr. Peabody, and then each of our other reactors. Dr. Clements? Yeah, thanks for having me. And I, I, I love the idea of breaking down the barriers between medical professionals or medical workers' discussions and the public. Because to be honest, it's a little bit of a false divide, and it leads to the public thinking, well, I'm not going to understand this. And it leads to healthcare professionals incorporating jargon and, and things into what we say. And I think it's a great idea to talk about this out in the open and, and really involve a two-way dialogue between those who are experts in the field um, and those who may be able to learn from those experts, as we, we can all learn together, obviously, but I, I think that it's just a good idea. Um, you know, this, this epidemic or pandemic has really taught us, um, we've pulled the curtain away a little bit from um, how medical science works, um, and it's not the way that the public would like for it to work. It would be great to have all of the answers right now, but there's not really a narrative to a pandemic. There's a slow slog from unknown to truth as we discover things. And I think you mentioned multiple times, you know, we're learning things as we go along and our models are being updated. But, you know, it's very, I think that's a, a key point here. Um, is that there's not really a bad guy in this pandemic. There's not really a story about where this came from or how it's going to end. We discovered a virus. It has infected us, and we need to figure out what to do about it. And if we, if we take it at that face value, I think it's helpful. I'm really excited to talk more about masks, um, so I'll leave some of that. Um, and what I've learned so far is that really it's simple things done right and done consistently that seem to be, to be helpful. Um, in medicine, we have something called universal precautions. I, I know Ms. Foster would be happy to talk about this, but we treat everybody as if they're infected, including ourselves. And, and I think if we can translate some of those ideas to the public, then, then we can be more consistent with hand washing, cleaning, and, and masking. And with that, I'll be quiet. 
because I, I got two pages of notes, and I Great. know that nobody nobody's on here to listen to me. Well, listen, we we are, and because we had a little interruption earlier, and in our on 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 demand program, I'll go through your 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 bio. But Dr. Clements is also a PhD. He calls himself a recovering researcher, and he's a microbiology expert. So we both have emergency medicine in that as well. Uh, Dr. Peabody, we've known each other since we were at Harvard together, and you were a third year medical student, and now you have this blossoming family, and you're at UCSF here on the West Coast with me. What, what comments do you have? And and I'm looking forward to having people hear you brief us on the five rights of emergency care, but I want to give you a chance to comment on what you've heard up to this point. Then we'll do masks, and then we'll get to your presentation. Well, I think the um, comments that were just made by Dr. Clements are absolutely correct in that we have a, uh, the, a false divide, kind of, between, you know, my persona at work and then when I come home. And, um, you know, uh, at home, we're, uh, my family's learning these things, and I think just having a one-stop resource to go to for families um, is really crucial and something that's been left out of the um, conversation to date. So I think this is uh, incredibly innovative and uh, happy to be a part of it and answer any questions that uh, people may have. Thanks for your contributions. We're going to get to your five rights of emergency care uh, quickly. Heather Foster is a nurse preventionist, wonderful contributor to not what we're covering today, but we will cover in future webinars, and that's how to prepare to care, create a care room at home, and she did a terrific job of helping translate the requirements that are laid out by the NIH and CDC, and so Heather, we're grateful to that, and she's on vacation today, but she's taking a few moments to comment. Heather, from a nursing or a nurse preventionist approach, what would you like to, to share with us, and then we'll move to the next section after we hear from Mr. Beth. Yeah, sorry, I'm trying to uh, do this uh, around people that are at a coffee shop here in Iowa. Um, I agree with uh, Dr. Clements in um, what we're in this divide, I think, when the public looks to, to healthcare providers for answers, when we ourselves are trying to navigate some tremulous waters with this pandemic. Um, I think it's great that we can kind of bridge that divide, Chuck, through, through the efforts of uh, MedTech and, and, and what you're doing. Um, I'm just such uh, uh, appreciative of being a, to, to be a part of that. Um, I think he touched on universal precautions. I think that's kind of what comes to mind when I see or look at COVID. I look at it through that lens. As a nurse, we're so cautious. Um, I, th I think in my personal experience, I've frowned upon doctors who walk in. So <laughs> I don't want to target surgeons, but, you know, they touch a patient without uh, hand hygiene or, or just gloves, and I often think, man, these are the basics, like you said, Dr. Clements, that we should be doing well. Um, so I always I kind of use that approach with people who have questions. And it seems to bring a certain calm because it's something they can do. Great, Heather. Many thanks, and thanks for your great contribution there and coming to us uh, on your vacation. David Besh mm -hmm. is a world-class educator. I've had the blessing of getting to train in many, many places as a radiation oncologist. At my age, I had to go to wor multiple world-class places to build my skill set, and I've never had such a joy or been able to witness such great educational gifts as uh, as David Besh, who's a science teacher at lower school. But I always learn from him. He saved 
the first life with MedTech as a teacher uh, uh, and learned something on a Thursday and saved a life on a Saturday. Uh, and uh, it's been a great joy to work with you, David. And you really are an expert in what we call the family CFO, which we cover in our other courses, the chief family officer. Uh, thoughts you might have right now uh, as an educator from what you've heard, and then we're going to jump into masks after we hear from uh, Jenny. Well, Dr. Denham, thank you very much for that lovely introduction. It's a pleasure to be with all of you today. Um, yeah, as, as an educator, um, my job isn't to just communicate and try to educate students. My job is to communicate with the entire family, um, and that oftentimes includes parents and, like Dr. Denham mentioned, the chief family officers, those of us that, that are really in charge of making those safety plans and big decisions for our families. And... Um, Trying to put this information in family-friendly language, I think, is critically important. It, it helps people um, not only feel confident, but also prepared to take on some of these, um, these really staggering uh, issues that we're facing today. And especially with, with fall sports and the start of school coming up here rapidly approaching, everyone's a bit confused. Everyone's a bit you know anxious and just looking for some clear communication, some information that as CFOs and as you know, non-professional caregivers, they can digest and, and make sound decisions for the safety of their families and their communities. So um, I'm just proud to be a part of this team. Thank you. Thank you, David. Uh, thank you so much. And Jenny, this has been a dream come true for you and I. We've worked many, many years in patient safety, and we always dreamt that it would be wonderful to bring the public together with our with our world-class doctors and nurses and pharmacists that we've got been able to work with. Your comments, and then we're going to jump right into masks. Thank you so much, Dr. Denham. Yes, this is so informative, and I'm so happy there are people out there listening to this that are not medical professionals because there's been so much misinformation going on. And I have to tell everybody who's listening, you can totally trust these people. They care about you. They care about your safety. They care about your life, and they care about your future. So I, I, I just want to tell you how elated I am that you're doing this, and I hope that you continue to do this for the public in the future. I think that this webinar may open a door to something really positive and wonderful to help save lives, and that is the per one of the greatest purposes that I share with everyone on this call. Thank you again, and I'll hand it back over to you, Dr. Denham. Great, Jenny, and most of you would not know this, but Jenny has just been the shoulder that so many folks have leaned on over the years after medical errors have occurred in their family, and uh, fantastic. So we so we, we've covered the disinfection of the hands and hand hygiene, and uh, I'm there. We have this video that uh, that that we just watched. Um, uh, disinfecting surfaces is important, but because we've got such great leaders on the phone, uh, go back and watch it. We, it is about a seven-minute video. We cover all of the research, the combined studies from the New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet uh, on how long viable virus remains on surfaces. And on the slide that you see right now, uh, we combined the, the best articles on this, this topic uh, in the one way to remember uh, how long the virus is on 
the surfaces. The main thing I want to communicate is, is that there was misinformation about three or four weeks ago uh, that was put out uh, uh, that said that the CDC says that these contact surfaces are not as much of a concern as, as we thought. Uh, this was complete misinformation. Uh, CDC did not put anything out. They just said that these are less, uh, a lesser issue, but they didn't come out with anything new. And so we really want to clarify that misinformation. So we hope that you come back and watch the seven-minute video. And again, thank you for indulging us to have the same ending of each video. We build them as building blocks for the public. When you take the course, you don't have to hear it, keep hearing the same thing over and over again. But we really appreciate uh, if you would come back and watch this video. We go through the detail of the high, high contact surfaces. They're critically important, not as important as droplet spread and the other things that we'll learn from our doctors today. But they are, are very important, and it's very important to, uh, to disinfect them. It is believed that individuals become infected by the virus entering the body through the wet mucous membranes that are the moist linings of our nose, eyes, mouth, and respiratory system. We can catch it from breathing in droplets and the breath expelled by infected patients who talk, breathe, cough, or sneeze. The virus particles are encased in globs of mucus, saliva, and water. Bigger globs fall faster, so they splash down nearby. These are traditionally called droplets. They fall rapidly onto the ground, and the scientists have reported that they drop within three to as far as six feet away from someone who sneezes. Smaller globs evaporate faster than they fall, leaving dried-out viruses that can linger in the air and drift farther afield. These are called aerosols. The potential for aerosol transmission in the air is not well understood, but highly potential. It's the reason why well-ventilated areas are prioritized by the CDC and why we need to be careful. As our public health leaders learn more, the guidelines may change. We will cover more about the use of masks in other videos. The guidelines may evolve as they did with the CDC announcement regarding the public use of cloth face coverings. This was based on the risk of asymptomatic patients who may never get symptoms and spread the virus, as well as pre-symptomatic individuals who are in the early stages of an infection and have just not yet experienced symptoms who may also potentially spread the virus. It has been estimated that these pre-symptomatic patients are a major transmission source of infection, potentially representing 45% of the spread even before they have symptoms. The symptomatic patients who know they have some form of illness represent 40% of the transmission spread of the infections. It is thought that approximately 10% of the infections come from the environment, such as from high contact surfaces and objects. And the people who are infected yet never develop symptoms or are asymptomatic patients may represent 5% of the transmission of infections in a population. A typical sneeze may unleash as many as 40,000 droplets. These can not only cause direct spread to others, but may land on surfaces we come in contact with all the time. A now frequently cited New England Journal of Medicine article addressed the persistence of viable virus on high contact surfaces and how it can be suspended in the air and represent an aerosol risk. We're watching this area closely and a report from the University of Nebraska biocontainment experts commissioned by the CDC addressed shedding of the virus by patients and the same potential. 
Medical studies are addressing the distance that droplets can travel when someone sneezes, and the NIH, CDC, and leading universities may continue to influence the national guidelines for the use of masks and modifications of social distancing. A study published and picked up by the press on May 13, 2020, reported that speech droplets generated by asymptomatic carriers of the coronavirus are increasingly considered a mode of disease transmission. The study found that loud speech can generate thousands of oral fluid droplets per second and that they can last in stagnant air for 8 to 14 minutes. The conclusion of the authors of the study was that these observations confirm a substantial probability that normal speaking causes airborne transmission in confined environments. Listen to Dr. Sanjay Gupta of CNN, who put together a nice, concise review of masks. Now that we know about uh, 25 to 50% of people are spreading asymptomatically, we suggest that people wear cloth facial coverings. While the White House recommends we wear face masks in public, some states around the country have started making that mandatory. I signed an executive order which will require the wearing of masks or face coverings when inside any retail establishments. Many are left wondering which mask offers the best protection. Now, when we talk about face coverings, there are the surgical masks I wear in the hospital to protect patients from my own germs and avoid any splashes. And then there are the N95 respirator masks that must be fit tested in order to protect healthcare workers during certain procedures. It's the only one of these masks that prevents most very small particles from getting in when used properly. We need to keep those masks in their hands. Then there are the disposable cloth masks, which you can buy in a store and online. They aren't made for surgery or for hospitals, but are also widely used. The CDC has recommended that we all wear cloth face masks like this one. My daughter made this one. When we go out in public and we can't physically distance from each other. And keep in mind, the reason is not so much to protect ourselves, but to protect others from us. It should come as no surprise that these medical-grade masks are more effective. But that doesn't mean we should dismiss the benefit of cloth masks. Let me show you. Take a look at this experiment done by researchers at the National Institutes of Health. They use lasers to help show how far spit droplets travel through the air when we talk. Watch how far those green dots go when he speaks. Without the lasers, these droplets might be invisible to the naked eye. But now, with the cloth, we barely see anything. Exhalations come out in the form of a gas cloud. And the wearing of masks, therefore, could be, even if they're not high-grade, a way to contain the range of that cloud. Lydia Bariba is a professor at MIT who studies the physics behind how diseases spread through coughing, sneezing, and breathing. Sneezes, which have the highest momentum, can then help these drops reach distances of up to 8 meters to 26 feet. Coughs are second in line in terms of their momentum, and that they can basically bring drops up to 16 to 19 feet. And then exhalations are third in line and bring drops uh, further to the source, around 6 or 7 feet. You can see now why wearing a mask, in addition to physical distancing, is so important. Your germs can travel far. We also want to make sure that that mask is also clean, right? So that it doesn't also become a source of secondary contamination. And you don't have to be a whiz with a sewing machine, like my daughter. An old t-shirt or a bandana will do. Ultimately, it's about having some form of barrier with multiple layers.
I do want to point out that the CDC does not recommend face coverings for children under two, for anyone who has trouble breathing, or for people who can't remove the cover without assistance. And when you take off your mask, you got to be careful not to touch your eyes or your face or anything outside of the mask. Keep it as clean as possible. Dr. Atul Gawande, one of our leading champions of patient safety, provides a great review of the science of masks and social distancing in his first of a series of New Yorker magazine articles. He cites a study in Nature that reports surgical masks block 99% of respiratory droplets expelled by people with coronaviruses or influenza viruses. Made of melt-blown polypropylene fiber fabric, the surgical mask material looks like cotton candy under a microscope. An electrostatic charge is applied to the fabric, which is what captures the viruses. Dr. Gawande cites a study comparing surgical masks to cloth masks that showed that the surgical masks were three times better than cloth masks at blocking outward transmission of respiratory viruses. He further states that the benefit to the wearer may be limited. However, laboratory research found they reduce inhalation of respiratory droplets by three quarters for the surgical masks and about half as much for the two-layer cloth masks. Finally, Dr. Gawande references an extensive review of the research from an international consortium of scientists. He suggests that if at least 60% of the population wore masks that were just 60% effective in blocking viral transmission, which a well-fitting two-layer cotton mask is, the epidemic could be stopped. The takeaway is that masks work to reduce transmission to the uninfected from both patients with known infections and those who are asymptomatic. Dr. Gwandi used the expression regarding the basic logic, I protect you, you protect me. We highly recommend you follow his series. We are watching the WHO, NIH, specialty organizations, and the CDC guidelines closely and will be updating our resources. Here we go. Okay, so, you know, uh, the numbers all get jumbled in our heads, even me, and I'm writing these strips and reading all the papers. And so this is where we really recline, we, we call on our great communicators like Dr. Clements and Dr. Peabody, who, who really know how to talk to patients to help make this really practical. So what I did was I took a, a paper by Dr. Prather and integrated a lot of the, the, medical, uh, uh, the, the medical papers uh, uh, to be able to uh, 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 integrate uh, uh, the uh, the articles uh, uh, and what we stand by. Uh, and so I thought we had a telephone interruption. So I integrated these uh, the articles uh, into something that we can all remember. And the first off is the the biggest danger we have is no mask at all. And we know that if we're within 15, uh, we're, we're within six feet of someone for 15 minutes or more, you might get a call from a contact tracer, and that is a, uh, that's our enormous risk. The two-layer cloth, two cloth mask reduces both the droplets that can leave us 
breaths through when we exhale our breath or when we breathe in by 60%. So that two-ply cloth mask actually is a good barrier for both. And I think there's been a lot of misinformation. I'm going to call, uh, call on Dr. Clemens to help clarify for us. Um, the surgical mask actually reduced the exhale droplets, those that we breathe out, by 99%. And the inhale droplets, now these are the medical-grade surgical masks that can do that. And then the N95 masks have the name N95 because they can stop small particles, 95% of the small particles both in and out, and we use those in, in our hospital. So I'm going to go back to, to Dr. Clements first as our resident expert uh, microbiologist and, and have you comment on the masks before we go to the emergency department. I, I cannot overstate the importance of masks. And if I were to give everybody one take-home message from this, it's you should be wearing a mask anytime you leave your house. Uh, and I know that that's not pleasant, I know that it's not fun, and I know that there's a lot of discussion around why, why. But the fact is, is that if we wear masks, we can beat this. Um, before I get into the sort of little bit of masks, I know that we've relied a lot or we have a great hope in the ability of a, of a vaccine to stop this. Um, and, and I'm hopeful, and that would be great if we got a vaccine. I, I don't want to throw a wet blanket on that, but other countries have beaten this without a vaccine. I would point to New Zealand and many of the island nations that, that are a little bit easier Absolutely. to control their borders. Um, but I, I would also say, there's not long-term immunity from any other known respiratory coronavirus. And to say that, well, we're going to get a vaccine and we'll get a shot and it's going to be done like the flu is not always, it may or may not be possible. And I'm hopeful, like I said, but we can't just look forward to that. Um, and so with masking, um, I, I want to be careful and reiterate a couple of important points that you just heard. One is, is that an N95 mask is not necessary. I, I practice outcome-based medicine. We want to do things that are proven to be good and safe. If you look at how healthcare professionals were protected in Singapore, Hong Kong, um, uh, and South Korea, they wore procedural surgical masks um, caring for these patients. They didn't get sick. At my hospital, we wear procedural surgical masks except in specific circumstances, and we're not getting sick. Um, and so to think that you need a big, huge, um, uh, you know, respirator is not necessarily true. Um, secondly, you have to be careful with what you're getting when you're looking at masks. Many masks that are sold have these exhalation valves, and I'm sure Ms. Foster can, can tell you more about this as well. And if I go to the store and I buy an N95 at the, at the hardware store, many of them will have an exhalation valve. The importance of masks is that it protects you from spreading the virus. And what Chuck showed you was that the, the most infectious that people are is in one to two days before they develop symptoms. And so you may be saying, I feel fine, I don't need to wear a mask, or uh, uh, you know, I'm not gonna be around any sick people. That's actually extremely high risk decision. And those exhalation valves mean that you can breathe out unhindered through those masks, which don't protect anybody around you. And so a cloth mask is actually better than an N95 mask with an exhalation valve. Um, and so I'll, I'll be quiet from there. I may chime in if I have anything else that, to add in, but I don't want to take the thunder from all the other wonderful experts you have on here, including Dr. Peabody and Ms. Foster. 
So, Dr. Peabody, uh, thank you so much because uh, we have a six-minute presentation by Dr. Peabody, and I want to make sure to finish on time, and we're almost caught up on time, so we'll go to Dr. Peabody on mask. But, Toph, we're going to come back to the five rights of emergency care and have both of you uh, kind of comment on what we can expect in the emergency department. So, Toph, anything you'd like to add on masks, and we'll go to David and, uh, and Heather and Jenny. I think the only comment I have on masks is that these, this is um, based on science and uh, um, politicizing masks, I'm just uh, baffled by it, frankly, and uh, it, this is one of the major ways we can keep each other safe. And so I'll keep you safe if you keep me safe and I'll be able to go to the hospital and treat patients with COVID-19 who end up getting the virus um, if I'm kept safe and uh, same with my family. Um, so we, we wear masks every time we, we leave the house. Um, and uh, just I know everyone on this, um, on this webinar watching is engaged, and, um, but we can, we can tell our community and, and help people um, by offering them masks if they don't have one on. Um, and so that's, that's my main take-home point. This is, this is uh, the way we beat this, um, is with just basic public health um, well-known measures, and uh, and we've seen it in other countries. Um, and so I would just want to reiterate what's already been said about the importance of masks. Great. Heather, comments? And then we'll go to David. We'll keep them short so that we can, because we, we never can have too many oper too many minutes with these two great emergency medicine docs, and I want to make sure we have a good discussion there. So, Heather, anything on masks? If not, we'll go to David. No, I think they covered um, the important aspects. However, Chuck, I will say that when I'm uh, visiting other people in their homes, um, I'm noticing masks just laying around, stuffed in the doors of cars. Um, I'm, I kind of I cringe when I see that. Now, my place in my vehicle is on the dashboard. Uh, sun, as we all know, is a kind of a disinfectant, but I think it's um, it's important to remind people that they still need to wash those masks, um, and even sharing amongst family members might be something we don't want to do. However, I know there's times where someone may have forgotten a mask, and, and you do what you have to do. But just just small little reminders um, um, like that, Chuck, is is important. Great, and we're going to cover this in these in more detail. Uh, I'm going to have all of you comment on our 25-minute the science of masks, and uh, we, you all have such great ideas. David, thoughts? Um, I, I think everything's been said. I really like the um, the clarity and the ease of these slides that really show the dramatic impact that um, wearing a mask effectively can have. Thanks. I, I come back to this to be able to talk to our scouts and, and uh, the kids that we work with, David, so that we can try to make it all these numbers just mixed together, even for those of us that deal with numbers all the time. Jenny, any comments? And then we're going to jump right into emergency, the emer what, what to encounter when we go to the emergency department. Thanks, Dr. Denham. I'm so thankful for the clarification about masks. Uh, masks have been such a controversial issue in the public, and people don't seem to understand or grasp how important they are and, and why we need them so badly. I, I really hope that everybody listening shares the information that they heard here today, and it helps get other people to understand the importance of mask wearing. Thank you so much. Great. So, Carl, uh, please run the... Uh, videotape with Dr. Peabody. The coronavirus crisis has intensified the patient safety communication risks.
Dr. Christopher Peabody is an assistant clinical professor of emergency medicine at the University of California in San Francisco. He's been a contributor to our patient safety work since he was a medical student when we met at Harvard when he was a Zuckerman Fellow. He contributed to the development of our Five Rights of Emergency Care framework designed to help reduce patient safety incidents, which is addressed in a 10-minute video available on our website. It emphasizes the role you can play to get safe care and great care. It addresses the right provider, assuring the right diagnosis, getting the right treatment, and going through the right discharge process, and making sure that you get the right follow-up. He provides his perspective of the impact of the coronavirus crisis on these five rights. Thank you, Toph, for taking time uh, for us today in this, uh, during this crisis. I know it's really challenging for emergency medicine doctors, especially those that are teaching as you are. Uh, can you just walk us through your perspective of the five rights of emergency care as they pertain to these new changes with the coronavirus crisis? I think that in the times of the coronavirus, uh, there are many uh, different parts of the emergency departments that's changed for patients and for their family members. And I think there's no other um, time that's been more important that you know the five rights and especially certain aspects of them. So, you know, we're not allowing visitors now, Chuck, uh, into the emergency department. Um, and most hospitals are shutting down visitors for the entire hospital. So. For certain patients especially, this, this has um, a lot of ramifications. One is that if you bring in your elderly um, uh, family member to the emergency department, we're not able to interact now with the son or daughter or the other loved one that brings them in and is usually in charge of their medical care. So we have to do all of this interaction over the phone. And so knowing the, the specific types of the five rights, um, when we give you a phone call and we have limited time um, in, in the emergency department to find out about your loved one is really critical. And so the previous diagnoses and the, um, the previous surgeries that your loved one has had is something to have on hand. Um, the medications they've been taking and how they've been taking them is, um, is also really, really important. And then the reason why they came to the emergency department in the first place and the, and the symptoms they've had um, are, is also helpful in getting the right diagnosis. So, Toph, what about the right treatment now that you've got a patient there without their family and you have to go through uh, shared decision making and whether they're admitted to hospital or not and a lot of the factors that we would normally do with the family? This gets really tricky, Chuck, and it's something that we're doing more and more so over the phone with family members. Um, especially with coronavirus and the um, COVID-19 is that, you know, a lot of times patients need to self-isolate and they need to have a room in their house and a, a, a non-shared bathroom um, for them to safely go home. And so we'll be asking those questions over the phone um, and kind of gauging whether or not that it's safe for the patient to go home for other family members in the household. And now uh, I know that you have been really wonderful about helping teach us about return precautions would be prior to the coronavirus crisis. Uh, when I ask you, what is the biggest risk in patient safety? You identified one of them being uh, return precautions. Can you frame what those are and then why that's important and then why it's important for coronavirus? Absolutely. So return precautions in the emergency department are probably one of the most important parts of your discharge and having a safe discharge home. Um, emergency physicians see you for a limited amount of time and only one point in time. And as we know, a lot of things in medicine can change. 
And so really understanding why to come back to the emergency department is critically important for any visit to the ER, but especially in coronavirus. Um, this is one of those viruses that, uh, you know, as I see more and more patients with it, is, is really different than any other type of virus I've taken care of. Uh, influenza, usually you're, you're uh, the, the regular flu, Chuck, is uh, the symptoms are really most severe right when you get the illness. Um, and we, we know what that curve kind of looks like. With coronavirus, I'm seeing patients come back after they've started to feel better, day seven to day 12. And so really understanding the return precautions for coronavirus, knowing that even though you're starting to feel better, you may have this second wave of where you're starting to get a, a worsening cough, worsening shortness of breath when you're walking, and, uh, and the fever can come back as well. Um, these are the things that I'd like uh, patients to know um, when they're diagnosed with uh, coronavirus and go home. Well, Todd, thank you so much for sharing this with us and also for giving us a demonstration of what to expect when we see you. Uh, I think that's particularly helpful. So thank you very much. Oh, it's my pleasure. And uh, it's uh, one of those things that talking about patient safety and what to expect, especially in these times of unexpected um, coronavirus illness is, uh, is something that I'd like to get across to patients. So I'd like to go to, uh, to uh, Casey, Dr. Clements, uh, and uh, really, uh, uh, you know, you, we rarely have two people of your caliber, you and, and uh, Dr. Peabody, uh, to address these emergency issues. I know there are many things that you could share with us. Please, uh, please share what you can regarding our trip to the emergency department, how we can prepare, how we can take care of loved ones, and what we need to know. Thanks, and, and, and thank you, Dr. Peabody, for doing this. I think it's really important. I, you know, I guess the first thing I would say is the ED is safe. One of the biggest problems that we've had in coronavirus has actually been that people have not come to the ED because they thought it was unsafe for them or they thought that we were full of COVID patients. And we've had a lot of patients all over the country not seek help for when they're having a heart attack or a stroke, um, and that's a that's a secondary travesty. And, and so I would encourage everybody here to know that the ED is safe and that you should seek care when you need it. Um, secondly, the part about the visitors and the part about how are we interacting with families is really challenging. It's challenging for us and we know that it's challenging for the public as well. We're not choosing to do this out of any convenience. We're trying to keep everybody safe and it's a balance. Um, I think that we should be responsible for giving frequent updates, for making sure that you're, you know, we can talk with family members with the patient's uh, permission about critical issues, and we also need to make sure that we're able to make exceptions in, in compassionate circumstances, including end-of-life care. Um, and, and I think that's a responsibility for us. As far as the uh, other sort of rights, I've always taught um, our residents here, that we have three responsibilities in, in emergency care. Um, the rights are from a patient perspective, and I appreciate that. Uh, I've never been a mnemonic person, and I, uh, this lines up very well with my worldview. Um, I've always said that we have to keep people safe and stabilize them. We have to treat their symptoms as best as possible as is safe, and we have to get people plugged into the healthcare continuum to continue their care afterwards, and I think that fits very well into this model. 
Um, and so I, I appreciate the thought that you guys have put into this, and I think it's a good starting spot. Um, the ED and COVID-19 era is an interesting place. Um, as I said, we are available and ready to help people when they need it, and I don't want that misconception to continue. Um, and I'm hopeful that, that we're doing everything we can to prevent any infections um, between you and us as well. And that's kind of my initial Great thought. Advice. Great, Casey. And I'm going to have Kyle, because we were a little, we've run over a little bit because we had the telephone uh, line drop out on us. And forgive us if we'll go a little longer. We'll, we'll, we'll edit minutes out so we have an exact 90 minutes and we do that for continuing education credits but while we have you on and we'll go to uh, Heather and David and Jen, uh, Jenny but uh, the idea of a family being able to be in a state of readiness and a state of being able to respond if somebody gets sick but this issue of knowing what to do to help rescue them if they get severe symptoms is part of that with this you'll see the survey pop up it's the same survey that we're surveying MD Anderson uh, 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 security staff we're hopeful at other medical centers like your, that yours at Mayo and UCSF uh, to be able to uh, de we're developing strategies to help our families and help address them. Um, any thoughts that you want to add to what Toph said? I put this slide up of uh, you know these these areas because this is where we're trying to help families understand. You can't rely on the local public health department to take care of your family member. You really now need to take charge. And and I'm going to go to uh, Heather and David regarding the chief family officer. Anything you want to add, Casey, regarding how a family can be in a state of readiness? be ready to respond, be able to, to, to rescue somebody if they get sick, to get them to the ED, and then this recovery resilience. I'll throw that at you first and then go to Heather. Yeah, I think making the plan for if and when somebody gets sick, sick is important. Uh, you know, some models have shown that 40 to 70% of the world may get this virus, um, at which point we have to be prepared. And that includes a lot of things that we've started to talk about, like an, a place within the house to isolate to, you know, food, or a food delivery system to be able to take care of that, a cleaning system, um, awareness that you know regular detergent cleans the clothes like you had talked about. I think all of those things are important. And I love the idea of having a, a plan. Um, we in healthcare should be doing this for our families as well. I know that I've had friends who have gotten sick with this virus and, and um, it has been an enormous challenge to quarantine yourself for the amount of time that it takes to get over this. We, we talk about two weeks of quarantine if you have an exposure if you actually get sick, the median time that people had been out, at least early in this pandemic, is 28 days because uh, it takes right. a long time to get over this. And so you have to have a plan for sort of long-term survival. Fantastic. Heather, what would you like to add? If you're, Heather, if, are you still on? Thank you so much for being there on your vacation and working from your phone. David. I think we may have lost Heather. Uh, Can you hear me? Uh, uh, oh, there we go. Yeah, go ahead, Heather. <laughs> yeah, you know, Chuck, it's interesting that 60% of Americans say that preparation for natural or man-made disasters is, is important to them, but about only 17 um, claim to have um, an emergency preparedness plan for, for themselves and their family. So, yeah, I think it's um, crucial that, that we kind of highlight this and, and make it, make it, what do we say? We want to make it easy for healthcare workers or you want to make it efficient and they're more likely or more apt to adopt um, whatever protocol it is. So I, I think this program is, is one of those, Chuck. 
Well, thank you. Thanks, Heather. And uh, David, you and I are, are scout leaders. Uh, we have had great fun teaching our MedTech program to scouts and actually do a whole block on family emergency preparedness. And I just want you to comment on everything you've heard and any questions you have, want to ask of the doctors. But also, David, comment on the, the, the value and how excited we've seen families and how they really have, once we gave them a structure for an emergency preparedness plan for merit badges and for things in scouts that they really grabbed hold and they had fun with it. Oh, absolutely. I think once families are able to get over the, the quote, like scare factor of, of creating a plan or their, 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 you know, their idea that they're not, they, they won't understand the information that this is above their pay grade and those sort of things. Once, once you teach it to them at a level that, that everybody can understand, then, then all the worry seems to go away and they, they come together, they have fun with it. Um, and for the, the CFO of the families, it's important that they not only create a plan and share it with their family, but they keep up with it and they review it mm -hmm. because with things changing so rapidly, you know, one plan you may have had two months ago, parts of it could be, could be out of date and, and not correct. So um, I think it's important that everyone just stays up to date, everyone stays confident, and everyone just really understands that the, the, this is information that we can all understand and act on and that we should be doing that. Well, thank you, David, and thanks for uh, stating that. Poor Kyle, our chief of staff, is actually running the webinar from laying on his side with back pain, and uh, he's, he's my hero for today uh, doing it. But Kyle and I have made probably over 200 scripts of all the videos that we've been doing since the crisis started because the science is changing so rapidly. Jenny, before I come to you to close, I want to give uh, Toff, Dr. Peabody, an opportunity to build on what uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Clements said. And also, thank you, Toff, for doing the Five Rights video for us. But Toff, I want to give you one more chance before we go to Jenny, who will, who will close us today. And I really would love to ask everybody to fill out our survey because the, the survey and the free text entry of things you want to know, I will guarantee you we read every line and we build every line into the next program. And our next program will reinforce some things, but it'll all be new. It'll be the evolving information, but we'll tie it into how you put together a safety plan for your family. But Toph, let me give you a chance before we let, let Jenny comment and then Jenny can close us. We always like to have a voice of the family and patient to close. So, so Toph? I think lastly is uh, if you are sick and need to come to the emergency department, we're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, nights, weekends, holidays, and uh, I encourage you to continue to come um, if, you, if you need it. Well, thank you, and, and, uh, and we just, uh, because I will let Jenny uh, close, and then our speakers, please stay on. This is our first time, by the way, to this audience for us to, to, uh, to play multiple videos over the WebEx. The technology's not really been at a state where we could do it until, uh, until recently, and uh, so this is our first time. Thank you for the glitches that you may have seen and the phone lines dropping out that were not part of that, but uh, thank you so much, and we, uh, God bless all of you. Thank you for all of uh, uh, your attention and please share this program with others. We'll be editing out the glitches and uh, the next program will be uh, the third Thursday of the month. We're going to cover the latest science. We'll cover what's in the news, which has popped up and there's so much every month that comes out. We'll also be uh, highlighting snippets from what you saw today so that anybody that joins our community of practice will not, uh, will not miss anything. And, but 
but you won't see the same thing next time. And to our faith-based uh, organizations and the volunteers and medical volunteers, I know from my church, Saddleback Church, one of the reasons we did this was we recognized how critical it was to help protect them. So we've got law enforcement on, we've got volunteers to churches, we've got uh, scouts. We want to thank all of you for doing it, and uh, we're building out certification programs for all of you. So, Jenny, I didn't want to shorten your comments on the emergency care, so whatever you wish to add. And then, Jenny, would you please close us, and then we'll keep our speakers on just for a couple minutes to just do a process improvement loop. Jenny? Thanks, Dr. Denham. Excellent webinar, and all of the information about emergency care is so important. I know that right now it's a very, very important that we triage ourselves, and, and when we call forth to try to go to an emergency room, we make sure that it's absolutely necessary because our clinicians, our heroes, are so overtaxed right now with COVID-19. Um, this webinar has taught me so much. I, I am so thankful for this, and I am so happy to see people on, on this webinar and the call that are not familiar with all of this, and I hope that you come back and you, you listen again, and I hope that you share the recording with others and invite others to participate in the future. It is well necessary and well needed in the United States today with this happening that we have people that we can trust guiding us with facts that are coming from science and truth that we can learn and understand from and know what's right and what we need to be doing with regard to COVID-19. We are all hoping and praying that this will soon dissipate and something great will happen through either a vaccine or other ways that people will start to get better and it'll stop spreading. But first and foremost, we need to listen to the science. We need to listen to the doctors and the people who are trained to deal with this, this virus. It is real, it is deadly, and it has harmed people that I've known and people that I care about. So just remember that you have people that you can count on in this group, the people who put on this webinar that you can go to and, and listen to and learn from. Um, again, thank you so much, and uh, God bless everyone here. Thank you, Jenny. We'll see you next month. And for our medical, uh, our doctors, nurses, pharmacists, we continue with our third Thursday of the month with uh, more clinical and tactical detail, but we have it open to the public as well. Thank you all.